Welcome to another episode of the Beer Physique Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Raman. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Bethany Rafe. Welcome to the podcast, Bethany. Hello, thank you. Yeah, awesome. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the on the territories of the Klehus, Homoko, Comox, and Plowman First Nations, part of the post Salish peoples of the West Coast of North America. Uh, who were one borderless community before we came in and separated them into reserves. And grateful to be on the unceded lands and do what I can to learn. So, Bethany. First of all, I'm just hearing a bit about kind of a little bit your your story, how, how you kind of got into the field of ABA and and kind of what led you here? You're, you're definitely going to have a different story than most folks, because most folks I talk to talk about autism and talk about sort of that journey. And so I'm really interested to hear how one gets to this point. Yeah, I'd be happy to, to share. Mm. So when so I'm from Wisconsin mm. and um, ended up at this little school, you know, college in um, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, mm. Back when Greg Madden was just a, a, a budding new faculty member, he um, had just finished his postdoc and was just starting um, his first faculty appointment. And um, I happened, I think I took a research methods class with him. Mm. And in that process, I had no interest in research really at that point. <laughs> Um, but uh, he, I guess I was doing well enough in the class where he invited me to be in his lab. Mm. And um, as soon as I got started doing research, I just fell in love with it. And mm. everything that he was doing was um, sort of quantitative modeling, decision making, choice, um, mm. you know, both human and non human. So I worked with pigeons, I worked with rats, I worked with people in a basic laboratory setting. So it was very basic research. Mm. Um, but he talked a lot and I took several classes with him, um, after that. And that's how I got into behavior analysis. I didn't know anything really about it. I, I knew I liked behavior modification. That's kind of right. all I knew about, um, until I got in and he was just, he and some other faculty members were just starting to like launch, a, a undergraduate behavior analysis training. Um, this is sort of the beginning of all of those certifications coming around. Mm. And so I was on the very beginning of that and um, just fell in love with behavior analysis. I think I was just kind of gravitated towards it. And then, of course, I was working in his lab. And in one of his classes, I learned about contingency management and mm. some of the work that um, Ken Silverman was doing at Johns Hopkins. Right. Helping um, doing, I think what he talked about was this like mobile addiction clinic sort of or a mobile um intervention where they're driving out to help homeless people okay. using financial incentives to help get them into treatment and, and, wow. and making abstinent abstinence and he was also talking about this therapeutic workplace which yes. sounded just so cool to me and mm -hmm. i just fell in love with that idea of um contingency management i just had I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And it was really hard because at that time there were really no graduate training programs in contingency management. Mm. Um, I applied to a couple of master's programs. I applied and, um, but I thought maybe I'll do a post back and I'll, I'll go work with Ken Silverman because um, over at Hopkins. So I, I considered doing that. 
Um, but I, I did apply to a couple master's programs in behavior analysis and then more traditional sort of applied behavior analysis. And sure. then there was one brand new faculty member just finishing up a postdoc with Ken Silverman and was going to University of Florida. And that was uh, Jesse Dallery. And mm. he was the only person I knew about in the country who was taking students to do contingency management. And so mm. I... I kind of got lucky by by entering to and I got lucky by getting in to University of Florida because it's the only PhD program I applied to um, and working with him. And I, and I just think of myself as very fortunate because I entered both Greg Madden and Jesse Dallery's labs right when they were starting out. Mm. Um, and I think that was just a really optimal time for me to be getting mm. involved in that kind of research yeah. um so and then working with jesse he has he's a clinical psychologist in training so his background was really kind of different not your traditional behavior analyst path um and so i i again continued to do a lot of this translational work while i was in florida i did basic you know research with rats looking at the effects of nicotine and then I did human operant work in the lab, looking at decision making and choice and modeling, you know, um, uh, interventions. And but what I really always wanted to do is contingency management. That's how I got mm. into the field. That's really why I, mm -hmm. I graduate degree. So it wasn't until I graduated or till late in my time at University of Florida that I really got to start doing some of that work. Um, but I loved all of it. I loved research. As soon as I got involved in research, I just fell in love with it and knew that that's what I wanted to do. So, and, and behavioral research at that. And then I got phenomenal training at University of Florida. Um, so yeah, that's mm. kind of my, my story. I worked while I was there. I also worked um, pretty closely with Tim Hackenberg on, on mm. some more basic choice stuff as well. And um, Mark Branch was on my committee. So I had just a really great education while I was there. Lots, lots of, lots of big wigs. Yeah. Um, and, and now where are you? So now I'm at Rowan University, and we have a behavior analysis um, master's program. We also have a PhD program in clinical psychology. So I have mm. students that I mentor at all stages at undergraduate, master's somewhat less so now, and at the PhD level, and who are interested in, in um, clinical psychology with mm. a behavioral slant because our coursework doesn't have anything behavior analytic in it. But we, but I, my research is obviously, yeah. Um, in that area so what is contingency management what, what makes contingency management it's its own thing and yeah. uh, and then kind of what what's sort of the history of contingency management yeah i think it's a branding thing and yeah, it's because, okay. in part it's partly because of the fact that it's in a different uh, population right and so that's i mean the name contingency management it didn't really it actually wasn't always referred to in that way mm. um it, it's more I don't know, recent, I'm, I dated myself, so I don't know how recent, recent really is, maybe yeah. 10, 15 years that it well, started I mean, to really become popular. 1998 isn't that long ago. So I mean, no, I, yeah. to me, it's certainly not. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, even during, since I started, it wasn't always referred to as contingency management. So mm. I'm, I think that that became, I think Steve Higgins really popularized mm. that way of talking, that terminology. Mm. He actually was the one who, um, it used to really be referred to a lot by some of the work he did by voucher-based reinforcement. Ah, uh, um, yes, so yes. It was VBRF or something for voucher. a long time. And then it got, then there was a book that came out that used the term contingency management. And I think mm. that's where that term became popularized. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, he, he and maybe Ken Silverman, I think, may also be 
an editor on that book. Um, and so, yeah, it was really, um, it, I mean, it, the history dates all the way back. Really, I mean, it's it's operant conditioning. It's just operant conditioning. It's, right. The goal is positive reinforcement. Conceptually, I think about it as like a DRO schedule um, where really we're looking for zero rates of behavior, but using some kind of a product of behavior because substance use is really kind of hard to observe directly, right? Mm. Um, so that's like sort of the theoretical foundation sure. that people could probably connect to. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maxine Stitzer, I think, is probably credited with the mm. earliest studies um, from from Johns Hopkins looking at contingent reinforcement for benzodiazepine-free urines and um, and uh, that kind of context. And sometimes using financial incentives, but sometimes also using clinic privileges and, and things like that. So not actually the origins aren't always financially based. Mm. It just became pretty obviously that like that works really well. Money works really well to help people achieve their goals. Um, mm. And uh, when they can't kind of, you know, do it on their own, so to speak, and they need that extra little push. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, it's contingent reinforcement. It's just, you know, withholding the reinforcer until we see demonstration of a target behavior. Um, most of that target behavior in the history of contingency management has been Sub, some kind of substance-free urine testing or mm. other drug drug testing, but it's been extended, and I've done some of this work um, to other kinds of health behavior, uh, medication regimen adherence, um, you know, physical activity, uh, all sorts of other other kinds of uh, social media use is more recently something that's been targeted. Um, those kinds of things. Mm. Right on, right on. And if and it so, works, it's yeah. reinforcement. If it works, <laughs> if it works, it's reinforcement. I mean, that's, that's right. the goal. We don't right. know if we have a functional, you know, reinforcer, but money is usually pretty effective for most people. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, substance abuse was that sort of the first application in, in like humans, or was? Yeah, I would say. I mean, it, the the history is very, very rich with regard to to substance use disorders. That's really where. I mean, there's a a tremendous amount of. Uh, empirical support for the application in that in the um, for substance use. It's actually the only evidence-based intervention for cocaine use disorder. Really? Um, there's no medications that like have been found to be effective. So for so that's actually where the public support, the government, federal support has been coming from with regard to contingency management is really with re with respect to to stimulant use disorder. Um, broadly i said cocaine but really stimulant use more broadly right um so yeah and and steve higgins has done a lot of that work actually. and this has been like like federal federal support. support i mean i wouldn't say they're doing it right this is the big concern mm. when you get a lot of support for an intervention that's gotten a strong scientific foundation is you know um there are a lot of regulations and and stipulations that are um imposed on how it can be implemented mm. um like and there's all these reasons why there's this anti-kickback law there's all these ethical concerns about paying people to meet certain goals and who the money is coming from and mm. um so there's rules that don't necessarily align with the science and that's mm. part of the problem and so and so who's are, are, are folks doing that work to sort of yes <laughs> you know tackle it lobby yes. or whatever and... yes there has been um 
I'm not up to speed on, on everything that's been done, but yeah. I know there have been some exceptions made um, to some of these rules. So like one of the rules is that the you can't pay using like Medicaid dollars if you were to use Medicaid to use uh, to introduce a contingency management mm. inter intervention. Um, there's limits on how many how how much the incentives can be and mm. over like the course of a year they're capped at something like ridiculously low at $75 I think um, mm. which doesn't align with any of the data any of the research mm. on if and actually if anything magnitude is a, a really reliable um, variable the higher magnitude incentive the more effective it is mm -hmm. probably not surprisingly um, and so $75 is pretty inadequate. And so there've been some, some um, exceptions made to that. I think mm. um, trying to keep it below whatever the IRS would require. So something like 599, there's been one exception, I think dynamic care, um, which is a, a mobile platform for delivering contingency management, uh, got that exception. So wow. that's promising. I mean, I hope for that, that means other people will get that. <laughs> same exception yeah 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 i mean because it's that i mean it's that sort of probably age-old argument of of spending money and and but all the research shows you're spending way less money doing it this way than to put them in you know these ridiculous not ridiculous but ridiculously expensive um like treatment programs and different things like that that you know may or may not be useful exactly yeah no i mean it it it's certainly less expensive to provide incentives for abstinence um especially because you're only providing the incentive when people are actually meeting the goal so it actually doesn't mm. cost anything for people who are not successful um because they're not earning the incentive right uh so it's at, you're only paying when people meet the, meet the abstinence criteria and it saves so much in lost you know productivity healthcare expenses the problem with it is who's paying for it and where those savings are being mm -hmm. seen so i think the healthcare industry is most equipped to do to implement it because they're going to be the ones seeing the savings because it's going to yeah. cost a lot less in, in healthcare um, down the road I get the sense it's not being used a lot. I think there's that... yeah a lot of barriers, and, and one of which is the government, you know, yeah. rules about anti-kickback laws, which are there for a reason. I mean, they're there to protect. They're they're not. It's just that we've got to find a way to make this exception um, with something that that works. I mean, like any treatment, we have to find a way. So. Um, the anti-kickback law, I think, is one reason. And then the $75 cap is another Can you sort of explain the kickback thing? I, I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's, you know, I should research it a little bit more. I mean, but it's just basically this idea yeah. that, like, you don't want, um, let me see if I can. It's a criminal statute that prohibits the exchange or offer to exchange of anything of value in an effort to induce the referral of business reimbursable by federal health care programs. The idea is you don't want like a physician to be making referrals, like getting money back or getting somehow benefiting off of mm. patients, I think is the idea. Basically like getting money from that. So from insurance company that should be going to the treatment instead of doctors taking the money.
There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is contingency. Something like that. Yeah, it's something related to that. And and it's like money going to the patient, money money Mm. going back to the patient. So I think that's the bigger, you know, issue is just the money going into the hands of of the patient who's paying for a service. There's some Mm. issues there. Mm. I don't fully understand it. Um, So it's some sort of systemic ideological issue that is unrelated. Origins are important, but it's causing... And they're they're relevant, and they're right. they need to be there for other reasons. Right, they're but imposing a, barriers, yeah, yeah. implementing it, contingency management in like right. healthcare settings. Obviously, right. if you're private, then you're not going to be subject to this. Um, if you're not using federal funds, it's not it's not mm. the same. But um, it's yeah, it's this um, barrier for sure. Yeah, and so. On that sort of private part, eventually I want to kind of get into your work. And I mean, stuff I want to talk about today, or you know, are some of the other ways you're using contingency management, sort of beyond drugs or also beyond money. But I'm I'm just curious about sort of a little more about on sort of the drug thing. Is where are we mostly seeing it, it being used right now, and sort of what what are the contexts? Is, is is it mostly through sort of these university programs where you have researchers and they're creating and they're doing studies and so they're able to you know get the funding and test and blah 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 and that's how you're able to do this stuff or are there actual you know community programs are there are treatment centers involved in this stuff you know all that yeah, kind of thing great question so actually um, Nancy Petrie was a just a leader in contingency management as well. And she, one of her probably greatest achievements ever was to, before she uh, her untimely uh, passing, was to integrate contingency management into the um, Veterans Affairs Administration, into the VA. So it is being, and, and she had a huge, I think, team to help get this rolled out mm. into the VA system, but it it is being used in the VA, to my knowledge, it's still being used in the VA, and it's one of the largest dissemination efforts of contingency management that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, wow. So that's one context in which it's being used, not just for research purposes, but actually implemented out, you know, in the in the, in society, I guess you could say. Mm. Uh, and also, um, California was trying recently to pass a bill to build contingency management into their Medicaid system. The governor kind of shot that down, asking for more research and wanting to mm. pilot the program. 
despite the decades of research that had conducted yeah. on contingency management, but whatever. Apparently, um, it was being used in, I believe, in AIDS um, clinic or something in California, mm. and then they and they were seeing great benefits of this pretty small incentives. I think there were something like seven dollars, the very very affordable incentive structure that they were using for drug abstinence in in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then they want, so now they're piloting that at the state level, as far as I know. So they're, again, um, with the Biden administration, they explicitly stated that that contingency management would be part of their sort of drug um, policy moving mm. forward. And um, so they're supporting it, despite all these barriers I mentioned. Um, the $75 is, is mm-hmm, a big mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. as well. Um, but so like there is interest to widespread disseminate. Uh, mm. And it's just a matter of like figuring out. I mean, I think so much of the research that was conducted was in these really con- pretty controlled settings with yeah. pretty large incentives and kind of almost idealistic uh, circumstances. Mm. So now the challenge that we are in is how do we get this out in a way that maintains the integrity of the science, but can be scaled up to the masses mm. and widely uh, implemented. So we're still working on that. Mm. Um, that's a part of what I, I my research focuses on as well as trying to figure out how we can scale this kind of thing up to large numbers of people um, at a you know in a practical way and in a, an affordable way and all of those things. So, mm. yeah, but much of the work has been in the context of research up to this point and what about because this it just this reminds me of um of sort of the suicide intervention research so i was i took uh kent corso's uh prosper course a month ago i don't know if you're familiar with that but Mm-mm. he's got it's awesome it's he's got a he does a basically evidence-based uh suicide intervention um there are i'm hoping i'm on the podcast i'm having a couple of his colleagues on later but basically in with suicide intervention you know the the there are like a hundred suicidologists as they're called on the planet. Like there's not nobody wants to touch this with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> so there's only like a hundred people actually specialize in this area. And Hence the only BCBA um, of those of that hundred folks, and so he's been doing a bunch of work in this. Without kind of getting into the the details of it all, they've got a method that can that the research shows will either prevent or stop suicide attempts. Something like 76 percent of the time, like it's crazy high. Um, but the problem is, is they've also got research on this that approximately ten percent of mental health professionals use the evidence-based research to sort of treat suicide. And so you've got, you know, again, much I think much like CM, you've got a lot of research showing how this works. And interestingly enough, and I don't know if there's a parallel, and it'd be interesting to ask him with the veteran stuff. Most of his work is in the in the military, and I'm wondering if he maybe has different kind of funding there or something. I don't know, but um, um, I think he was in the military himself. But anyway, um, point being, 
you know, not many people are doing it. Um, and there's a whole bunch of evidence that shows it works. Um, and it just sounds, you know, again, like it's with strategy management, it's about, you know, giving people money. I think that's the, that's the thing that seems to ruin it's everything. A, it's a sticking point for a lot of yeah. people. And I think it's not just giving money, but it's who's getting the money. I think that yeah. to me, that's been the social element that's caused barriers but i think that we're getting past that yeah. it, it's been i mean not entirely the cost is always still coming up as a concern and nobody will say that it's it's because cost treatment costs money you know i mean mm -hmm. it just does mm -hmm. every treatment costs money you don't mm -hmm. um you know I, I work closely with kim kirby and she was made the point that like you know there's how much does cancer treatment cost you know really and if we can be paying but but yet you you grumble about the little bit of money, the couple hundred bucks I want to give these people to quit smoking to prevent cancer. But once they get yeah. cancer, you don't really seem to have the same problem giving the money, you know, having uh, complaining mm -hmm. about the cost mm -hmm. of that treatment. Right? So true. Yeah. And so it's like maybe there's I think it's more about who's getting the money than it is about the money itself. I mean, yeah. everything everybody's going to complain about money, but when it works really well, it actually is saving money. So um yeah it's just that people don't there's a stigma there right uh, against yeah. those who are receiving it so yeah and what about like where does it where does sort of continuing management is all about abstinence so folks have to get abstinent first i think it depends i we use a shaping procedure um okay. in in smoking cessation where we have people cut down not so they're not just going cold turkey we have them um have it depends on how you're measuring the behavior and mm. what your level of resolution can be with regard to that those cut down you know how, how you can objectively verify the behavior and um, so for smoking we use carbon monoxide and we can pretty easily objectively give them these lower and lower gradually reduced goals so that they're not having to cold turkey quit um mm. But I think it just depends on the behavior because not, I mean, other substance use disorders, usually it's a urine test. So there's metabolites and you can focus on reductions instead of complete abstinence. Although, mm. you know, I'm not sure how much that, how common that is with other substances. Um, I know we do it with smoking, but I'm not sure. We, I, I do a little bit of work with opioid use disorder as well. And um, we have kind of been, um, looking at reductions as opposed to complete abstinence because fentanyl has an incredibly long half-life mm. so it's really hard to actually use a urine test result to reinforce to verify abstinence from fentanyl right. so you have to look at patterns of use over time and so you're still going to come up positive for fentanyl but it it can take like a month to leave your system. So mm. it can be coming, you can be abstinent from fentanyl and still be showing positive on a, t on a urine test. Wow. Um, so yeah. although abstinence is our goal, we're not necessarily looking for zero on a urine test result for fentanyl, which is pretty much an all. So how do, you, how do you measure that one then? How do you... Right now I'm relying on my physician for clinical um, expertise you know i we send him the urine test results and if he he looks at the patterns and decides if the re, you know the distance between urine results and whether the reductions that are seen between tests look like they would be the correct oh. you know prop proper 
So when they're when they're testing for fentanyl, obviously you're not a doctor and you can't analyze tests. He can tell, he or she can tell if the if the uh, like if if there's less fentanyl. Yeah, yeah. You can, um, I mean, it is it is a continuous variable, so you get these um, lower levels, and um, so we're basing it on his clinical judgment, which is basically, I mean, it's not the perfect dependent variable or me- method, but. Mm it is what's done in practice, right? So it's, yeah. we're really relying on how, if he were to see the patient, what would he determine based on what he's seeing in the chart for this patient? Does this meet your expectations for not taking uh, illicit mm. opioids? Mm. I was, I think, I, I sometimes I forget that nicotine and caffeine and other things are also drugs. Um, and so I was, I was thinking more about kind of like how things work with like like uh, like drug treatment centers and you know sort of those places like uh, uh, have you seen any of those folks using any of this or is it more someone goes to a drug center they get clean and then 30 days later they come out and then they come into your program is that kind of how it works or you know there's different ways it's done for different mm. people i i've done only outpatient uh work for opioids and mm. i'm only just starting in the opioid realm that's new mm. for me um yeah. there are people who do uh inpatient as well though or like start inpatient and then transition to outpatient it just it really mm. depends um on the substance and the team yeah yeah sort of thing yeah so are, are there are, are there other folks that have been doing opioid research in this area oh, yeah. for a while yeah. or yeah yeah. For, yeah yeah um you know this uh the hopkins folks have been working in this space for quite a while um more often with methadone methadone has been around for quite a bit longer um we're working more on with suboxone or buprenorphine which there have been a lot of changes as of late um because it's a lower likelihood of um abuse or diversion buprenorphine when mixed with naloxone can be prescribed now by any physician anybody can write any physician can write a prescription used to be that they're trying to basically reduce barriers to getting access to this treatment right just reduce as many barriers as possible Mm. so the first step that happened a few years ago was to allow physicians to go through a training to become x waiver to prescribe suboxone and so any physician could do that but they could also choose not to if they didn't really want to see patients for substance, you know, for opioid use disorder. Mm. Um, but they actually just redu- re- removed that X waiver requirement. So now any physician really can prescribe buprenorphine um, to their patients. And so it really just re- reduces all these, all these barriers. So there's not as much research yet. Um, it's, it's hap- it, it is happening. Uh, we have some work going on. Other folks at, at Hopkins and, and elsewhere are doing some work in, in that space. Um, mm but it's it's a little newer yeah and those other medications you're talking about those are basically like methadone they're replacement yeah whatever partial agonist and um and then antagonist as well and so that therefore uh, it just doesn't have the same level of risk with regard to um uh diversion or abuse uh as methadone Mm. would have Mm. and so they're just much more it's 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 just got a safer profile that allows more people to prescribe it. And where we first, when I first got involved in this space, and again, it's pretty new for me, but um, was in 
an emergency department setting. This was actually just before the pandemic. Um, hmm. I was working in the ED in Camden, New Jersey, um, very uh, low socioeconomic status environment, you know, a lot of um, just, you know, high risk population, very high risk population. So we were working there and what they, they've done, they're, they're really trying to take like this, you know, reduce barriers as much as possible. So there's this mm. thing um, where called the bridge program that was mm. uh, developed where people could walk into the ED, yeah. even if they don't have any emergency, but just to get bridged over to treatment mm. for opioid use disorders. So they can walk in if they're in withdrawal or experiencing withdrawal, they can be given um, buprenorphine right there and then get a prescription to get uh, and then an appointment over to a clinic. And we had uh, this was ongoing as soon as the pandemic hit, everything had to shut down. And so we've transitioned now we're at, they have a walk-in clinic. So it's kind of the same thing where every day they have a walk-in clinic. They don't go to the ED anymore at the moment. They mm. just walk in, it's across the street. They walk into the clinic and all the same stuff. They can get all that, all that care. So those are the people we're recruiting are new, new patients who are just mm. walking in um, and trying to keep them in. So what happens is people about, more than half of, of of patients who start treatment don't return to to continue. So right. it's actually about forty percent of people who come to that next appointment after getting induced onto buprenorphine. Um, so we're just trying to increase that number um, to mm. start, and then we're also staying with folks for three months and providing contingency management. So we have um, a really big incent financial incentive for them to come in to their next appointment, which is usually about a week later. Um, we have a $50 financial incentive just for coming in, not, mm, not, no contingencies awesome. other than attendance at that point. So they show up and um, they take a urine test at that visit. Um, and for all subsequent visits over the course of three months, they get a little incentive for showing up um, to those appointments and, and attending. And then they get a bigger incentive for meeting abstinence criteria and um, adherence criteria for taking uh, buprenorphine. And again, we cool. base that on clinical judgment with the physician that we work with. But um, so yeah, we're, we're finding really a really cool. big impact of the community. Yeah. That's the, cause I, you know, also I think just cause I know so little about this, I just have always just assumed continuity management was all just about, you know, abstinence or not. Um, and that's all you guys did, you know, um, um, but that you do do, you do apply lots of principles and, lots of shaping and lots of different things going on to kind of work folks, you know, harm reduction, all those sorts of steps to exactly. eventually to get to, to abstinence. So that's awesome. Yeah. We feel like if they can just come through, like get in the door, they're getting other services when they come there's their social work, there's all kinds of services that they're getting just by walking in that door. So, yeah. and if they're not abstinent, when you know, then we don't give them the bonus, but um, mm -hmm. they can come back. Eventually they're going to be referred. I mean, they're going to, they're not, adhering they're not going to be able to continue coming but well and it's so big just to get them to be in the presence of these services i'm in british columbia mm -hmm. in canada and our government's doing a pilot uh decrim of everything um right now it's i think it's going i think it started in february and uh, how it's going but apparently it's not working Really? Because um, they're not making, providing those other services or something? Potentially, or? yeah. It's it's actually making things worse. And and they're kind of, there was a, a special on TV the other night and kind of where a bunch of the Vancouver 
Pops went down to Oregon where they apparently had decrimmed for quite a while. And apparently that everything is worse. The, the, the deaths are higher. Like uh, it's, it, it's, it's made things. And I don't, and again, I don't have any research to show this. I don't know if this is accurate, but um, because yeah, because it's still, it doesn't take away the stigma um, um, and, uh, and they're not, and yeah, they're not providing any services. So it's still, you can still, you still buy your fentanyl off the street, but now you only get a fine where if it's legalized, you can buy your fentanyl, at the you know registered shop you know, uh, so that that's has, the difference yeah that's that the has the services there versus legal yeah yeah exactly and and so i so very a, a prime a great example is and i know in ontario when when canada legalized uh, cannabis a couple of years ago you know ontario was quick to open up these uh cannabis shops that had um that had doctors in them that would, you know, make medical recommendations and, and, and yeah. so on and so forth. And I was like, yeah, there you go. That's, 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 yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So. I'm, I mean, and I think there's so much else. I mean, there's so much structural components to what contributes to whether people are going to really go down a, a bad path versus, yeah. um, you know, just socioeconomic status, social support, um, there's so many other environmental variables that are mm -hmm. going to contribute to whether drug use is prob becomes problematic or not, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah. And, you know, there's not a lot of research on contingency management for just attendance at things, a little bit here and there, and it's got mm -hmm. mixed kind of outcomes, whether it's helpful in terms of abstinence outcomes or, or drug reduction outcomes yeah. or not. Uh, we had no choice but to do it this way because um, we're doing, I think you might call it a pragmatic study almost in the sense that we're working within the clinic and we're really doing things the way they do it and trying to impose ourselves as little as possible mm -hmm. and have as little researcher influence as we can. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, and so many things are changing all the time. The only thing we could really count on was that they required, even during the pandemic, they required people to come in and they take urine tests, but they often send those urine tests out and that's why we uh, reinforced attendance because um, you want immediate uh, in reinforcement for the mm -hmm. target behavior. And when you're sending out a urine test and you don't get the results for four or five days, there's this delay there that is very critical and, and problematic, right? So we're really not able, like my my research assistant, my graduate research, she's amazing. She's checking the electronic health records every minute like hmm. the, as soon as the results come in she tells the participants but it could be several days you know yeah. um and so we want to provide something immediately to them and so that's how we kind of can't got around it because they just weren't doing tests that provided immediate uh, results on site yeah. uh, reliably and anyway is that is that possible so they did. They well, they've done it, and then they didn't do it, and then they've done mm. it, and then they didn't. So we realized that we couldn't count on them doing it, and mm. if we were to add it to their procedures, it's not what they naturally do. And we could certainly, we thought about that. We thought about bringing our own point of care tests in, and yeah. having somebody of ours doing the point of care. But then that's not pragmatic. It's not how it could actually be implemented. So we should, yes, we shied away from that, and we decided not to do it. It just. Um, go with what we could count on. So like, what is stable about this environment? Because so much was changing all the time, you know, whether they're walk-in or by appointment, whether they're, you know, 
in the ED or in a clinic, whether they're at this site or that site, whether they have point of care tests or not, you mm -hmm. know, all that stuff was constantly changing. So we just looked for the stable features of the environment yeah. and what can we provide a reinforcer for there. So definitely part of this is also trying to, you know, build capacity so these folks can do this themselves. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, that would be great. And we've just, and and something that could, that isn't specific to our site, because I think that's another thing to, uh, part of the reason we didn't decide to introduce our own point of care tests is because, you know, I think this is probably true a lot of places, mm. um, that there's not consistent, reliable, you know, stuff. The thing is, I mean, um, like the only thing we do that's additional, other than for, obviously, we provide a, either a text or a phone call to tell them what financial incentive they earned upon attending and getting their test results back. Mm. Um, but that's all we do. And the clinic, a lot of clinics have introduced these patient navigators who do basically that. I mean, they, they're constantly, they're, they're contacting patients to remind them about appointments anyway. I mean, that's part of the, it's, I think it could be easily built in to their standard care procedures. Mm. And then it's just a matter of, yeah, figuring out where those incentives come from. But if you're billing and, and it gets complicated, but like if they're having patients come in, then can some of that come back? And then, then you get into kickbacks, <laughs> the mm, anti-kickback mm, stuff. Mm. So it's it's complicated, but I think that we're trying to make it as pragmatic as possible so that when we can't overcome some of those barriers, it could be rolled out in these clinics and, and more widely used. So, yeah. Yeah. And then there's mobile interventions. You know, I mentioned dynamic care before. And we're also looking at some mobile um, contingency management uh, platforms to do this remotely so that, again, if it could be semi-automated or something like that, then it could be more easily um, disseminated in clinics. Yeah. So, because I know you, 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 uh, you and some folks wrote a, wrote a chapter recently for for behavior analysts that might want to kind of work in work in substance abuse. Oh yes, uh, this is with Kim Kirby you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, and it's it's great. What's what's the sorry? What's the book that that chapter's in? The second figure word is mobile specialty training. Yeah, this is in applications of behavior analysis in healthcare and beyond. Oh yeah, cool. Well, it's a Sounds like an awesome book. It's um, a it, it's a pretty cool chapter. No, not that I'm biased or anything, um, <laughs> but I think it's a pretty cool. I actually am not because I was, although I'm an author on it. It's really Kim Kirby was the mm. one who who and Claudia helped shape that a bit as well. But there, it's cool because she um, actually created this like task list, kind of mm. similar to the BACB's task list, right. for, but that's focused on like what would be the critical skills that would need to be demonstrated for a person to be considered competent to practice in this area. Um, as oh, a that's awesome. Analyst. So I thought, yeah. It was, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and I imagine there's quite a few skills, Yeah, yeah. you know, and so, and I, and I, and I don't know if this was sort of a, just a sort of a high in the sky theoretical idea, but is is it, it would would the hope be that maybe one day someone would create a specialized you know sort of graduate program or 
like how much training do you think one would have to go through to sort of be even sort of entry level competent to safely start doing some of this stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it would be more of a track. Like if if you're th this is how we thought about it, and this actually, I don't know about this chapter, but the BACB was doing these like um, I don't want to I don't know focus group is the right mm. term, but kind of mm -hmm. like focus groups on spinoffs of uh you know certification that could go into other like sport and fitness and right, substance right, right. disorders and that kind of thing. So Kim, Jesse, Dallery, and I were on a committee. Oh, maybe August Holton was on that mm -hmm. as well. I think yep. August Holton was on it. Um, and we just were brainstorming ideas of what next, what would be the steps that would need to be taken. And it's kind of this chicken or egg problem of like, you need people who can provide the training. People need to be trained to be able yep. to do this. Like yep. there's, you've got the BCBA and there's no real value of the BCBA for people who want to go into substance use treatment. Um, so how do you create value for it mm -hmm. in that area? And you, so you need training, but you need people who can do the training. And there's not a lot of people who are qualified to do that training. So it's kind of like, where do we begin? Do we create yeah. the demand first? Like, that's the other part of it, too, is the demand. People don't value that credential in the area of substance use treatment, yeah, right? No, exactly. So how do we get it to the point where we demonstrate that people who are trained with the BCBA, with a focus on substance use disorders can provide some superior service and mm -hmm. um, quality of, of treatment that is better than what's already available sure. for, you know, substance use. You know, and then there's also sort of just like who even wants the job because right now you can get seven figures working in autism. Are you going to get that working somewhere else, the BCBA? You know, I've, I've heard about, you know, it reminds me of some of like the, the behavioral gerontology work where, uh, you know, some really great stuff that they're doing. But in a lot of places, in order for a BCBA to actually get a job, you know, doing behavioral gerontology, they have to start by getting a job as sort of a frontline care worker in a nursing home and work their way up the ladder until they're eventually in a place where they can make some decisions. Or maybe they get a therapeutic recreation degree and kind of go that route or something like that. And, and then just sort of sneak in the ABA, um, you know, as sort of part of their role. And so it's a really, you know, and I imagine, I feel, I feel like with the drugs, uh, the substance use um, stuff, it's, it's, you know, it's similar, you know, you got to go be a, you know, a worker in a, in a, in a residence or whatever, and, and eventually go, okay, now I can help. Yeah. And they do not get paid well. Um, yeah. Like licensed substance abuse counselors and uh, mm -hmm. it, it is not, we just created a pathway at Rowan for our master's students in clinical mental health counseling to become licensed alcohol and drug counselors mm. um, for those who are interested. And I thought that would be a cool. nice merger if yeah. you have that license, that, that program, which we are about to launch, plus um, even our behavior analyst students who might be interested could become, you know, um, licensed in that totally. capacity and have that dual license then maybe but I, the the right now again it's that demand mm -hmm. um issue and i think we somehow have to demonstrate our value mm. i don't know how to do like how to solve this problem exactly but i feel uh, like the one way and you probably looked at this but just just knowing so the context that i work in so i, I work in it for a company that 
just had a conversation with someone would be a good case for you, <laughs> but uh, who, where are we, we, we get referrals from the, from, a, from social workers to the government and it's free services for folks. So it's often folks that are really complex cases and really down and out and, you know, often drugs are involved, addictions and other things like that. And what happens and, and, but also develop, so it's dual diagnosis or whatever. So it's like developmental disabilities. So you've got sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, fairly independent, you know, autistic individual, but they're engaging in drug use or whatever. And so, and we come in, we get the referral because of autism. Um, but the real problem is drug use. And then we're like, what do we do? We're out of our scope. Uh -huh. And so, you know, I feel like those folks would really benefit from, you know, this kind of work and training because they're already getting paid as a BCBA for whatever, whether it's insurance or whatever. But right. now they just now they just need some skills to sort of deal with this other side, just like any other sort of bizarre area. Yeah, I wonder how common that is and if there'd be like a niche, you know, for somebody there. And I do think that as a, you know, to kind of bring it back to our beginning of our conversation about yeah. the government support of contingency management and the fact that CM is the only intervention that works for stimulant use disorder, really that's known to be empirically supported, that creates the, uh, a need and a precedent um, for well-trained clinicians, you know, people who are pra pra practice practitioners, mm. but who have the training in substance, you know, substance use and behavior analysis that sort of mm. be bringing together of those skills so that they can oversee and train and roll out a well-executed CM intervention with um, in, in maybe in clinics, outpatient clinics or, or something like that. Mm. So I think mm. maybe there will be more demand and then maybe we start with the kind of program that we have where we have these two separate tracks that can kind of overlap or students can and do both um, and create and then create some experts who can then help with the training, you know, and, and continue to, to help it in that regard. So, yeah. Yeah. Wondered about sort of, uh, kind of community management and kind of some other contexts, um, mm -hmm. that you've done some work in some other areas because, you know, I think it's obviously it can be used in a whole lot of different ways, with a lot of different things. Um, 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 what are some of the options that are out there for folks that maybe want to use contingency management, but they're not able to they're not able to get cash to give people? Yeah, that's something I'm doing a lot with right now. So mm. um, looking at non-monetary financial, non-financial mm. incentives for contingency management. So one of the things I, I started doing, I was approached by a video game designer. Wow. who's also trained in behavioral pharmacology. Um, he just, I think he just really loved video games. And so he went down that path career-wise too. But he had this training in, beha in behavioral sort of approaches and understood operant conditioning and really had an appreciation for contingency management. So he reached out to me back in like 2010, I think, mm. um, Darian Raposa. And his idea, which I thought was brilliant, was to basically create a video game that could then essentially it, it creates like an economy and in 
this economy if you create a fun game something that mm -hmm. people want to come back to yeah and there's resources within that game that can be used and earned and yeah. exchanged and you know if you think about like a um any kind of a um resource based like building up kind of yeah. game yeah, yeah like you know farmville was popular at the time that yeah. he reached out to talking about yeah. you remember farmville and cityville and all those like spin-offs yeah. so it was and that was like when facebook was first starting to in, starting and ending <laughs> to introduce video games they didn't really do it for very long mm -hmm. um and so he approached me and we thought let's try to combine the stuff that i had been doing with jesse dallary on internet-based contingency management where we're doing it all remotely we're able to monitor people smoking remotely um using video and and this is like way before the zoom was as popular as it is mm. now um and uh and then, uh, but instead of using financial incentives, we use video game incentives. We use game, so they provide their objective evidence of abstinence. And then instead of giving them money, we create this really awesome environment where people want to earn these resources to build their game and come back to the game. And and it you know it has so much potential because mm -hmm. um, the video games are popular. They're not just popular with teenage boys either. Um, they're they're popular across the age. You know, Absolutely. The spectrum um they're popular people start and they don't necessarily stop playing games there's all kinds of different games um that you can one could create and people play games for years at a, like some games yep. i remember i played like um well the scrabble word was it sure uh, scrabble whatever. go or whatever yeah it was something like that whatever yeah. that one was oh um, word words with friends words with friends i yeah. played that for years and like you know um there's just all these games that you could play for years with people and, yep. and you know it doesn't require a lot of time they're called casual games once mm -hmm. casual games came to be it's like you know you're standing in line or you're you know waiting for something in the morning whatever you just play for five minutes and then that's it and so i thought this was a really great idea it could sustain people for years which one of the problems with contingency management is that because it costs money a people complain about the money and b um you can't do it for a long time mm -hmm. because you have to eventually fade it out um, because and, and thin the schedule yes. because um, you can't depend on those financial incentives forever. Yes, yes. So, you know, thinning is is not something that's been well studied in contingency management at all. Um, and people often will relapse or go back to, to using um, mm. when the intervention is not mm. always, but mm. but mm. it can it can happen. It does happen a, a good bit. And so, um, you know, how do we sustain these interventions? How do we scale them up to the masses? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. how do we do it in a way that people can use it for however long they need it? We don't, and we, the, the, the reality is we don't know how long people need the intervention because we've never been able to implement it for very long. We can only implement it for, you know, a couple months at most, usually, maybe up to three three months at, at a time. Oh, um, really? okay. That's the longest that they've really, you know, actually, that's not entirely true. Ken Silverman, I think, had one going for, a long time over yeah. a year in the therapeutic workplace context but yeah, yeah. um but yeah so it, it, these non-monetary game-based incentives were very appealing to me and it seemed very like absolutely promise um so we did that we got a couple grants to develop a couple of one facebook game which then facebook stopped doing games right um and then another mobile one so that was even more exciting because now you could design it such that it competes with smoking. So when people are out, they've got the game in their pocket. They can play at any time. They mm -hmm. can be designed to compete with a craving or, or whatever. Um, and so uh, showed a lot of promise. The, the limitations from my perspective are not everybody plays games. 
finding a game that can compete with the vast array of games that are out there that are, you know, people spend billions of dollars, you know, on, on games and, uh, and just about millions developing games. And, um, and so there's some really good stuff out there to compete mm. with us. And, and so my current endeavors are, you know, like, let's not reinvent the wheel here. There are already lots of non-monetary smartphone based content whether they be games or other content news you know social media music pictures whatever people are using their phones for all sorts of things that i don't have to develop those things myself right right that i can just make those things contingent on demonstrating abstinence Mm. so that's what we're currently at i have a, a, a grant um with uh mickey cofferness at university of kentucky um, where we are developing what we're calling reconnect, um, which is basically uh, taking, identifying what apps people are using on their phone. Um, and then they can select. One thing we've learned is that people want to have some autonomy in this whole process. So they want to be able to select what apps are going to be blocked. Um, and then uh, those apps will become available contingent on demonstrating abstinence from smoking oh, in this case, but it really could be applied to any behavior. Um, that we want to target. So we're just starting with smoking because I have such a history of, of that work, but um, it could be applied to physical activity or any other mm. kind of behavior. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of different than the traditional contingency management in the sense that it's more of a negative reinforcement strategy versus a positive reinforcement strategy. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that impacts people and if it's even acceptable. So we're kind of at that early stage of just figuring out will people do this will this be effective but it has great potential to be very scalable if people if it, if it does work it can be rolled out you know with very little cost to yeah, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people you know so so what would it look like what would that look like if i'm trying to quit smoking and then play a video game yeah so let's say you have a video game that you love playing whatever that might be sure um and uh you select that one to be the thing that you need to get that that's blocked until you've demonstrated abstinence. So mm. basically what happens is we have something that lays over the app. It's, it's only currently working with Android, but um, it just, have you ever heard of it? Like an app blocker, any app blockers. So like right. uh, on, on the iPhone, they have screen time. So it's like, yes. oh, I have certain categories of things that I only want to use during these hours. And so any other time that I try to open it, it won't let me. Right. right. Yeah. It's the same idea. So gotcha. the app, so if it's a game that you selected, that game won't be available to you unless or until you submit a sample demonstrating that you haven't been smoking. So we are using um, just they're they're blowing into a carbon monoxide meter. It's mm. taking, it's it's video based, so they're uh, or it's uh, picture based. So they're submitting the sample. We can verify their identity. We can verify who the, who's doing it. It tells us what their value is for their carbon monoxide. And then if it meets a criteria, they'll get a token and they can use that token to unblock the app or not. They Mm. don't have to use it at that time. They could accumulate tokens and save them up. But if they do, these are parameters we have to figure out. But um, if they do earn a token, they can unblock the app for some period of time. Uh, I got you. Four hours. Presumably if this is, um, if you're totally adherent and you're not, and you're meeting your goals, you should always have access to your app. Right. Um, but if you're not, then you might not have access to it for some period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we call it reconnect because it's like reconnecting with your priorities, reconnecting yep. with with your values, I guess. 
um, if, if smoking abstinence is a value and maybe even less screen time is a value, these kind of can come together and mm. help you realign those things. So yeah, that's the idea, but it could be any app. I mean, and it could be multiple that's apps. Cool. It could be multiple apps. It could be, you could change which app it is from week to week. Um, and, and, but it, it's going to require a little bit of self-management, a little bit of self, yeah. um, a, a high degree of, of, you know, being wanting to do this. <laughs> and how do they, how, like, do you get the results pretty quickly from those CO it's tests? Immediate, or... Yeah, it's immediate. Unlike the drug testing, mm. uh, the CO monitor tells you right on the screen what your CO value is. Right. And then it's, and then how do you get that to, so the, it's communicating with app. our app. So we have an app that Mickey's team at uh, University of Kentucky mm. has been developing to block the app, to identify what apps are being used, block oh, the apps, yeah, and then gotcha. unblock the apps. All of that. Is and, also of, get, and it also gets the reading from the Yeah, and it gets the reading from the CO. The, the yep. thing, yeah, yeah, cool. And we can plug any input into that. So like I said, you know, right now it's smoking. He has also done a lot of work with alcohol abstinence with the same app. So we could apply this to alcohol. Yeah. Um, we could apply it to physical activity or anything yeah. that can have an objective measure of the target behavior. Oh, like with a Fitbit or something like that? or Exactly. That was actually, I had some students at Rowan developing a prototype and that's what we targeted was physical activity. Cool. And so, so with this way, like you said, you don't actually have to make the game because right. it's, you can just use whatever game they're into. But or then you're also looking at making a game too. We point. made two. We actually made two games. We made Up from the Ashes, um, which was the Facebook game. That's a good um, name. Which was yeah, Up from the Ashes was a great. The name was great. There were a lot of bugs with the game, so that's yeah. why it didn't. But it had a lot of promise. A lot of people yeah. were interested when we started recruiting for it. Um, we got no shortage of people wanting to participate, try out the game. Yeah. Um, and then what we were doing it was sort of like one of those. Um, it was it was this post apocalyptic environment. Yeah. And um, you were going to build it up and, and and reclaim the earth and, and get it back to mm -hmm. being healthy and green and yeah. in the process, getting resources to build the science, the labs and um, plant trees and do all sure. the things to clean, clear the air um, by demonstrating that you're not smoking. So they were uploading right. their CO sample, getting those resources that they could then build. Those That's resources. awesome. And I could I could totally see that working really well. If, but would... like you said, it's got to be a good game. It's got to be a good game, and it's really hard to build a good game. And yeah. frankly, uh, the NIH just doesn't provide the funding that's needed. I to mean, it's, game, it's yeah. I mean it, that when it comes to cost, I will say it's not cheap to build a game and to build a good game. And um, but once you've built the game, if you've built a really good game, it could it would be significantly cheaper to roll it out to you know wide numbers of people and. Um, so it just, it wouldn't cost any more to have 10 people in, mm. in the intervention versus 10,000 people in the intervention. It wouldn't cost that much mm. more. Um, and you could have people who quit and are successful, or you could have people who relapse and need to do it again and, and again and again, which is pretty common for any substance use disorder. It's a yep. recurring chronic you know condition that people have to come back to it repeatedly and it wouldn't cost any more for them to come back and try again and try again. And you could build it so that they could do it for however long they wanted. So there's so many things about this alternative approach, uh, non-monetary approach, that I think is really promising and um, 
And now I'm just trying to extend it to the smartphone apps more broadly instead of video games. Yeah. We also we also developed another game, a smartphone game called Inspired, mm. where we deliberately had it so that you had to hold the phone um, uh, horizontally with both hands so that you like couldn't smoke at the same time. Oh, okay. The core game was about five minutes, which is about how long it takes for a lap, uh, a craving to kind of yes. and, and uh, move on about how long you would spend on a cigarette break if you were going outside for yep. a cigarette break. Yep. So we kind of planned it um, thinking about smoking. In, yeah. How'd that go? Similar problems. It, really promising. We spent a long time trying to develop facial recognition oh, when, wow. the, when the technology wasn't really quite there yet. Um, the CO monitor was giving us all sorts of problems. We got really good um, preliminary outcomes based on self-report, which I had to rely on in the end instead of more objective measures of abstinence. But what we found mm. was that people who reported smoking less also were much more engaged with the game, were more got further into the game, mm. played it for longer, remained um, engaged. Of course, that's all correlational. I can't say of course, yeah. what whether the game was the reason or sure. if people were different or you know what what led to that relationship but there is some promising evidence that that it was having a potential effect so yeah. you know now we're trying to actually get the co monitor to, to work properly and yeah yeah <laughs> do it this way yeah well it's interesting that i wonder if some folks think well are, are you just replacing one addiction with another oh like... i get that question all the time <laughs> i get that question all the time and how do you answer I, that? I don't i answer that by saying i don't know of any buddy who's died because they played video games too much right <laughs> um so i mean we have a 400 almost 500,000 people dying a year because of smoking related illnesses so uh, i'll take it <laughs> yeah. i'll take one and also the, we were very deliberate in how we designed the game mm -hmm. so that it wouldn't really be something you play for more than five minutes so yeah it's casual and people, if they're yeah. gonna play games they're gonna play games and might as well play one yeah. that's helping you quit smoking at the same time i mean yeah. it's a category of games we call serious games which are really mm -hmm. designed to promote real changes in behavior outside of mm -hmm. the context of the game that's meaningful and there's a whole mm -hmm. bunch of games out there um, games and then there's like health. a there's like a journal related to that isn't games there? for like... health and then there's a series there's two two journals i'm aware of maybe more serious yeah. games which is a JMIR Journal of Medical Internet Research. Yeah. Has a spin-off or like a uh, whatever journal yeah, called yeah, Serious yeah. Games. And then Games for Health is the other one. Um that's all focused on uh, there's some really compelling research demonstrating that video yeah, games yeah. can can promote real real behavior change. No well, doubt. What I'm I'm also like really interested in gamification and um gamifying which is different than a serious game gamification mm. is adding game elements to everyday kind of behavior or, or tasks so mm. you you've definitely been gamified um or experienced it there are things like badges um mm. leaderboards um uh all those sorts of things are gamification where it's not a video game where you're like in this immersive world or anything like that um but it's just adding something to look for like it's it they're they're incentives they're just not financial right they're right people engaged in all sorts of interesting behavior to get access to badges so it's like the facebook badges as an example of you know That's top one. contributor or whatever and those kinds of badges maybe <laughs> i don't know how much those control people's behavior mm. maybe they do i know that's the goal probably 
Um, yeah, right. I'm thinking like I'm a, I, I've been a Peloton enthusiast for a okay. while, and they have done very well with the whole gamification. They have, you know, consistency badges or um, basically just showing up every day. You mm. get different badges. Apple yeah, does yeah. it too. Apple the Apple rings. Um, they have uh, monthly like monthly challenges right uh, that are tailored to you to the individual um based cool. on your data what would be a a goal that you could actually probably achieve um and then you get a little badge it's just it, it somehow it affects it influences my behavior i can't yeah. speak on an empirical level uh i'm sure there's some data maybe not directly on the apple watch you know mm. uh, ring badges but those those have been effective um for a lot of people and then other leaderboards and other kinds of um neat uh gamification elements that's cool i'd love to see something with the video games where so i know something like i play a little bit of video games myself but i'm super cheap Mm -hmm. um so like free free video games but free video games often have a lot of in-app paid things yep that i wish i could afford like Mm -hmm. that would be a really incentive to me yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we were Pokemon Go, for example, is probably one of the most commercially successful video games, you know, to promote behavior that was meant to be really positive behavior, right. like getting up and walking outside, yeah. you know, getting outside, walking around. It promoted yeah. some odd behavior too, but, you know, like, like getting hit by a people, car because you're not looking Right. You're not paying attention. You walk <laughs> off a cliff because you're so yeah. busy trying to catch yeah. the thing. Um, yeah. That those things really happened. And, uh, <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, but there are these things like the incense that you can attract these. Those kinds of things could be used contingently. So that mm-hmm. was my other before we decided before we started designing reconnect. My thought was to work with video game companies. Yeah, and you know if you have a subset, it's it's a public health good, right? Like, yeah. oh, you want to say that you also help people quit smoking? Here, you know, you can get totally. these, if yeah. if you tie this contingency in. Um, now you can get the incense without having to pay for it because you demonstrated that you were not smoking or whatever the target mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's potential there too. Yeah, that's so awesome. What what uh there's there's something else that just in relation to kind of the the non-monetary um options, something I, I read somewhere about deposit contracts. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jesse's done. Jesse's done a good bit of work with that. Um, I did a one study with him on mm. it. Uh, basically, a deposit. We call it deposit incentives. Mm. Um, sometimes they're deposit contract, but basically, a person. Um, and it's not uncommon, right? When you are, seek treatment, that you might have to pay a little something out of pocket. Yep. So the idea here is that okay, a person will make a deposit from their own money which also uh, takes advantage of this like loss aversion kind of finding or, you know, phenomenon mm, where people right. just, it's very aversive to lose something that's, that's yours. Yes. And it, it, it promotes a lot of behavior, right? Um, so you deposit some money and then you can earn that money back contingent on demonstrating abstinence. And so the idea there is to offset the costs again, because cost is such a big criticism of right. contingency management. So where's the money coming from? Okay, have it come from the person themselves, then you won't feel so bad giving them the money because it's their own mm-hmm, money. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if they don't meet the criteria or meet the contingencies, then that that money gets forfeited and it can go into a pool that could be used to offset other, you know, contingency mm. interventions potentially. Um, there's a lot of models of that. Uh, even 
app when you were asking like oh where is this in the world happening the deposit approach is actually being more widely um commercially available or just available to the general public hmm. uh have you heard of diet bet or step bet or no what are these uh, quit bet so diet bet was the first one i'm not a big proponent of diets so i'm going to talk about step bet okay um step bet diet bet was the original but step bet is where they basically um you join a challenge with other members and you have some kind of activity tracker it could be a, a some kind of a smartwatch or a fitbit um yeah and you get a deposit. I believe the deposit is $40. I participated in this many years ago, but um, mm. you make a deposit of $40 and that money goes into a pool with your other members of your team that you're yeah. or your group that you're in. Sure. And so the money's all pooled together and then everybody is given tailored goals based on their own physical activity. So it, it looks at your historical data over some period of time. Um, and then it gives you goals over six weeks and you have to meet those goals and if you meet those goals every day, I mean, it's it's really six out of seven days. You get one kind of flex day, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to meet these pretty rigorous goals that the program sets for you over the course mm. of six weeks. And if you're still standing at the end, you've met all the goals across the six weeks, whoever's still left at the end gets to split the money in the pool. Mm. Um, they split up that all of the deposits that were made. So it's interesting. It's it, um, when I, because I did this myself. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I did it. And I was, it happened that I I joined the challenge right after uh, ABAI conference in San Diego when I'd been walking like 20,000 steps every day. Ah. So the goals that I was given were really extreme <laughs> um, okay. and very hard to meet, but it got me moving. I'll tell you that. I got me up. I'd go for walks at 10 o'clock at night just to yeah. meet my goal because I wasn't about to lose my $40. Yes. Um, but all I, but it's weird too because you end up, um, kind of hoping other people won't meet their goals <laughs> in your group right. because so that's the only way to make more money. I mean, and, or just like you can break even if you, you know, meet all your goals, but um, you kind of hope for somebody to drop out, which <laughs> isn't the best. Like I'm all about social support and um, yeah, yeah. really encouraging collaboration and yeah, yeah, competition. Yeah. Um, and I, I, and then people get engaged in behavior. That's not the target behavior, right? All like right. this is true. Anytime you have incentives, involved people start doing things to get the numbers even if it's not them so that's why verification and objective evidence mm. is so so critical to cm because like put the fitbit on their dog exactly i knew right. somebody who was in my group on my you know in my group who was giving her husband her fitbit to wear and i'm hearing this i'm like why am i doing this you know like <laughs> um so there's better ways to arrange it i think there are ways to do it again to align with yeah. the science that that um I respect the work they've done. Actually, they've yeah. been working on a quit bit, quit bet based on the work that Jesse and um, oh, cool. his his uh, internet based CM work that that um, I helped out with some. And so yeah, they've they've been incorporating that in. I just would love to see more of the collaborative approach versus that competitive um, angle on it. Yeah, right, and especially if you if you're actually able to communicate with people and you can actually engage in behavior to make them do less or right it's know, it can or, get a little dicey there you know you yeah know. so i, I do I like that idea though that. I, I, oh it's I, a I think, great idea it's i think great. that would work for me like if i gave you 50 bucks and and could get it back mm -hmm. um you know i mean talk about a, the the best kind of gym membership or 
Yep, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. There's been some really great research. Kevin Volp and um, their team at University of Pennsylvania did a really cool study with mm. CVS employees where they compared a traditional earning, like kind of, they don't call it contingency management, but yeah. it, it basically, it is, but it's not as rigorous. Um, yeah. Where the employees could just earn money for ap smoking abstinence. Right. They were randomly assigned to different groups. One of the groups, they just earned money. Another group, they had to deposit, they had to make some deposit and then earn it back that way. Mm. Um, and what they found was that people, when they were randomly assigned, readily joined the group that just earned money, you know, not surprisingly. And the group that was assigned to have to make a deposit, the deposit was very large. I'll say that. Um, I believe it was like $250. It was not a small deposit. Yeah. Um, they had a lot less acceptability of that group, a lot fewer people, many, many fewer people joined when they were assigned to that group. But when they just compared those who joined in both groups, the outcomes were much better for the deposit group that, you know, had something to lose yeah. versus the just simply gains group. So acceptability is a problem and finding that sweet spot of like how much money are people willing to pay mm -hmm. to join a group like that? Um, because once they do, it seems to work very well. Um, yeah. So anyway, I think that's really fascinating. Be interesting if you could incorporate like payroll. So you've got a job now, mm -hmm. but your money gets funneled into the app first. So you're working, but you still got exercise to get your paycheck. Yeah. You know, sort right. of thing. So yeah. it's, it's basically what the therapeutic workplaces. Um, right. I guess so, not yeah. based on exercise, but based on drug abstinence. Like you can yeah, come to yeah. work. It's a little more forgiving than a typical workplace where it's like, yeah. you can come back tomorrow. But today, you know, if you're pos if you're positive for substance use, you can't come in. Mm. Um, but you but they they make the paycheck contingent to some extent, right? Yeah, no, really neat. So, what are like maybe some of the other kind of areas or like I mean, smoking? You've talked a lot about. We've learned a lot about drugs. Um, I, I love this whole sort of just health behaviors, and especially I think that that can really you know, mesh well. I've, I've been talking to a lot of behavior analysts lately who are looking for other places to do doctorates besides ABA, you know, and, and, uh, and I've seen a lot of them going into the, the, the DBH programs. So the doctorates in doctorate in behavioral health, health. programs. Yeah. And, 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 you know, because I think behavioral health is, is really a super untapped market for our, our folks. And, uh, um, and so I'm, I'm just wondering sort of, I, I, I imagine you can apply it to anything, but what are what are some of the other places, areas where you've kind of done some research and seen some good things happening with yeah. this community management? Well, I will just make a little plug for our clinical PhD yeah. program because we do oh, yeah. our clinical program is focused on health health behavior. So cool. um, it is a clinical PhD, um, but all of our practicum students, all of our students do practicums in healthcare settings for the most mm. part. Um, so there we have two medical schools at Rowan University. Um, that we work closely with and okay. um, we're in an environment where there's tons of hospitals and we're right, we're right outside of uh, Philadelphia and the Delaware area and New York City. And so we don't, you know, we have connections to all these healthcare settings. Mm. Um, so everything I do is health, health behavior, broadly speaking. But um, I've been, obviously I've talked about smoking and, and substance use disorders, but I've done quite a bit um, with diabetes as mm. well, diabetes management. Okay. Yeah, um, right. As soon as I graduated from uh, with my PhD, that was my first application 
sort of extension of contingency management to something outside of substance use. Mm. And not a ton of people have done that. So um, I think that's a ripe area for, for research. I haven't been doing um, diabetes management since I've been at Rowan, um, but there's, there's a lot that can be done. The third secret word is diabetes. On there. Uh, and then physical activity is the other one that I've done work in and, and others as well. Uh, so I've got a student right now who's actually doing back, you know, getting into the physical activity um, research. We have some prof other professors who do physical activity here at Rowan. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's, those are, are some areas, but I think I, I've also done a little bit of work on medication adherence. Oh, so yeah. uh, it, it was focused on diabetes, but it could be applied to any, anything where there's an adherence problem with medication, which is a lot. I mean, most, so much of healthcare is behavior, right? So, mm. um, you know, you're told you have this condition, you've got to take these, this medication to help reverse that condition, or yes. you've got to do these exercises to help with the pain, if it's physical therapy or whatever. Um, there's so much behavior related to health that can be incentivized that mm. where people are just non-adherent with so many of the recommendations out there. So mm. I think it, there's a ton of different areas where, where it could be applied. Mm. Wow. Really cool. And so yeah. what are, what are some of the, the big future, future projects not the big, but just future projects that you're doing? Yeah. So with physical activity, I've got the student, it's not contingency management, but it's virtual reality. So we're, mm. Um, mm. we're actually joining forces with a, a virtual reality company that does a physical activity. Actually, there's some behavior analysts who are associated with that company, Supernatural. Um, oh, yeah. And it, it's a virtual reality Antonio. coaching. Yeah, Antonio. Yeah. Uh, he uh, He's the person who I first found out about it from, actually, I think it was at Baba um, yeah. um, when he was presenting. And then so we're and one of my colleagues who went I went to graduate school at at, Rome, or at uh, University of Florida works for Supernatural as well mm. on their research team. So we're looking to just see how again video game immersive video game impacts interest, adherence, likelihood of participating in activities. The thing with physical activity is you can get people to engage for little bits. But getting people to stick with something and really turn it into a um, habitual, something that, that people, you know, actually yeah. engage in consistently. Or what I'm most interested in is like how to keep people going despite disruptors. I really want to know how to research, how to get people to maintain these activities in spite of having some kind of disruptor, a mm. physical injury. Um, work demands travel anything that kind of throws a person off how mm. to get them back on or yeah. keep them on like to, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. not allow those disruptors to just completely right. shut everything down right right um and so that's that's what i'm currently interested in with regard to physical activity uh we're also doing the reconnect stuff as i mentioned um yeah. for non-monetary incentives and then opioid use is, is a new area for me so i'm mm -hmm. looking at uh, some other uh, uh, extensions in that realm mm. so wow. all over the, all over the place <laughs> really fascinating stuff so cool cool but i do awesome. love physical activity research quite a bit so I'm, yeah i'm hoping to do more with that well that's great and with all the technology out there it's, it's certainly will make things you know easier for 
you know, measuring that folks are actually doing what they say they say they're doing versus the self-report, which can be difficult to work with. Yeah, really cool. Yep. Yeah, that's what most of my work has some technology element to it. So yeah. Well, Bethany, this was neat. Learned a lot. Really cool. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Super awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Look at.